Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, my audio quality probably sucks. This is the first time I've done a podcast in literally three and a half months, and I'm out of practice. But I've got this wonderful microphone, a Newman TLM-103 microphone, which is a fantastic microphone, but unfortunately, you need a real dead room. In other words, not a lot of echo in the room to make it really sound good. And while I was gone, my company, my partners, moved to a new office. I knew it was going to happen. It's not a surprise. But in my old office, I had carpeting. In this office, it's a more modern building, so it's got a concrete floor and very little sound deadening around me. So I'm going to be interested to uh, listen to this podcast and see how bad the audio quality is. A lot of things have happened since the last time I talked to you, and I'm not really quite sure where to begin, but I guess I'm going to just cover a, a lot of the trip, at least part of the trip, and like you can say, you can hear, you can hear every ruffle of my paper, everything. Just a second, I'm going to pause this while I open up Google Earth to, uh, to be able to talk about this. All right, so starting the story. So I left on January 4th to fly to, um, to, Alme- well, to, to fly to Malaga. So my route was going to go from Salt Lake down to Houston, Houston to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Malaga. And I used some Sky Miles. And I had a confirmation of the trip. And I get to the airport. And they don't even have any record. This is United, by the way. They do not have any record of my trip. Even though I had a confirmation in my hand, they said apparently a confirmation is not a confirmation. So even if you have a confirmed itinerary with a piece of paper in your hand proving you have a confirmation, they could not find it in their system. So I'm in a panic mode because my other true crew members have already left and are already over there waiting for me. So after about an hour on the phone, they finally put me on another flight, but I'm too late to make the connections that day. So the next day, they, they fly me basically down to Houston. I spend the night in Houston, and then I catch a flight over the next day. And uh, my friends, Dave Harris and Bill Wiebe, my first crew members, met me at the airport, and we continued off from there. And of course, what happened was my luggage was lost, and Bill's luggage, who came in the day before, never made it from the United States over to Europe. And that's a whole nother saga that I'm not really going to go into. But basically what happened is his luggage went back and forth between Seattle and I think Paris about four times before it finally made it down to us in Almiramar. It was a real nightmare. Oh, no, it never made it to us in Almiramar. He had to go pick it up when we got to Benaldamina. Anyway. So we work on the boat for about three or four days. We do the usual stuff. We put in a new rod holder because I planned on doing some fishing on the crossing. So we put in a rod holder. We bought a rod. I had a reel. So we had a rod and reel and lures. And we put in the Iridium Go. So I would have communication on the crossing. 
Uh, by the way, I was crossing from uh, Almiramar, Spain, out through the Straits of Gibraltar, down to the Canary Islands, and then from Canary Islands to Cape Verde, and then across to Grenada, and then from Grenada down to Trinidad, where I left my boat at the end of the year. So I don't know how much of this trip I'm going to get to. I'm probably going to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes, get this podcast out there, try to get back into the rhythm of doing a podcast because I'm totally out of the rhythm. We got in the water, we launched in the water, we had a rental car, Bill took the rental car and drove it back to Malaga, which is where we rented it from the airport at Malaga, and then he was going to catch a cab down to the uh, the harbor at Malaga and meet us there. Well, it turns out, uh, so we left at night, about six at night, and we motored all night long, and about eight in the morning, the wind started blowing from the west to the east, so it's right on our nose, because we are headed west, and about 20 miles out of Malaga, the, the wind started building, 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 and then I looked onto Navali, and I found out that they don't allow small boats into Malaga, it's only a mega yacht port, so we could not even meet up in Malaga, we continued on down to the the harbor of, I'm going to butcher this, Benalmedan. Benalmedina, Benalmedina, B-E-N-A-L-M-A-D-E-N-A. And by the time we got there, it was blowing a full storm force wind. And I was able to tie up and refuel at the dock, but there was no way my boat was going to be able to back into a slip, and we were able to talk the harbor into letting us just tie up at the fuel dock for the rest of that day. Over the night, the wind died as can happen easily in the Mediterranean, too much wind or too little wind. And then the next day we motored from from Benalmedina down to Estepona. That one I can pronounce because I spent uh, quite a bit of time in Estepona. And uh, I was hoping to spend two or three days in Estepona waiting for a weather window to get out through the Straits of Gibraltar. But as it turns out, it looked like we had one weather window and we could not dilly-dally along. I was hoping to take a few days and work my way down the coast of Spain and enjoy my last uh, sailing in Spain, but we did not have that opportunity. I knew the hardest part of this entire trip was going to be getting out through the Straits of, Major- of <clears throat> getting out through the Straits of Gibraltar. And we had a weather window that was coming up, so we could not dilly-dally. So the next day, we went from Estepona down to a little yacht club called uh, Club De- Deportivo Nautico Saldillo, Saladillo, which is on the west side of the uh, Gibraltar, the Bay of Gibraltar, uh, still in the Spanish side. I didn't want to go into the English side because I did not want to worry about clearing in and out of customs. I wanted to stay in Spain so I didn't have to go through that headache of clearing in and clearing out. So we refueled again there, and then at the crack of dawn the next morning, we started heading out through the Straits of Gibraltar. We had a weather window that lasted basically one day. There was no wind going out. There was a, there's a, About the Straits of Gibraltar, there's a constant current coming into the Mediterranean from the Atlantic. It's about a three-knot current on the surface. And if you go down about two or 300 feet, there's a constant current going 
out. The dense water is going out about 300 feet below the surface, and the relatively fresh water of the Atlantic is constantly flowing into the Mediterranean. So there's this circulation of water. So you always have about a three-knot current uh, going from west to east into the Mediterranean from the Atlantic on the surface. So we had to take that into consideration. So we're motoring about three knots all the way out through the Straits of Gibraltar. There's no wind, which is good. Uh, it would be nice to have a wind from the stern, but I'd rather have no wind than, than a wind from the, from the bow because it can be pretty rough going into, uh, into the seas created by the winds coming into the Straits of Gibraltar. So we went out. Turn the corner, and then we are on a long motor for the next day and a half straight down through the coast of Morocco, off the coast of Morocco, probably about probably about 20 miles off the coast. I was told to go out about 100 miles to get off the coast of Africa, but we didn't. We just uh, we followed what Predict Wind said to do, and we stayed fairly, not close to the coast, but about 15 to 20 miles off the coast of of uh, of Morocco. After about two days, we caught a 60-pound tuna. I'll try to put a picture of it up at the website. And we're still motoring along. The weather pattern shows that there's a hurricane in the Atlantic uh, that we are on the very, the very outskirts of. But it's dead calm for the first day and a half. And at this point in time, Bill Wiebe, who's a commercial fisherman, uh, in Alaska, is worried that we're going to run out of fuel. And I said, don't worry about the fuel. It's a sailboat. If we run out of fuel, we'll just wait for the wind to blow. But he was very nervous about that. And we did have an extra uh, three cherry cans, so 5, 10, 15 gallons of diesel fuel that we carried on the deck, which increased our range quite a bit. So as we're motoring down and we're running out of <laughs> We're worried. Bill is worried that we're running out of fuel. We stop and and refuel our. We go ahead and take the jerry cans off the the lifelines and and empty them into the fuel tank, and so now we have empty fuel bottles on the on the on the rail, which is better than having full ones. But about that time, the wind started building up. Uh, we caught this tuna. Let me talk about the tuna. So, one of the projects we did when we were on the hard in Almiramar was we put in a uh, a rod holder and we'd been dragging a lure behind the boat we had one bite but uh, it got off and the next morning we got uh, a, a bite and it grabbed it so hard it literally broke the rod holder which would spend a lot of time installing on the boat and uh, fortunately the rod was tied on with a safety safety line so we didn't lose the rod and we fought and fought and fought this tuna to try to get it in with the rod and reel it was so strong that the drag on the reel couldn't pull the fish in so we ended up taking the uh, the, the fishing line and wrapping it around the winch and winching it in with the winch and we finally got it up and it was a beautiful beautiful yellowfin tuna we ate as much of it as we could and saved and froze some more of it and uh but still, as much fish as that was, we still ended up throwing about half of it away, which was which was sad because it was such a beautiful fish. Anyway, the winds filled in, 
and we uh, we started sailing. We had a great uh, day of sailing. Then the winds kept building up and kept building up. They're coming from our stern, so we're rolling quite a bit. Uh, this is the uh, that's the predicted weather pattern. Is the wind is going to be from our stern all the way across the Atlantic, and that's pretty much what happened. And uh, about two days out of Lanzarote, the winds are really building up strong. The boat's fine, but it is uncomfortable down below. Uh, we're having to hold on. It's almost impossible to cook because of the motion of the boat. So we uh, we ate whatever we could grab, which was easy, like apples and candy bars and granola bars, that sort of thing. But really, it was just uncomfortable. Uncomfortable as, as, as could be expected in a boat going downwind. A small boat. Remember, this is a Bristol Channel Cutter, 37 feet over, 28 feet on deck. One of the most seaworthy boats you can ever find. It's it's absolutely bulletproof. Bill, who has a 40-some-foot commercial fishing sailor in Alaska, was just amazed at the the waves that would hit the boat and he'd just shake them off. The boat was never in doubt. It was It's, it's a great boat. It's a, a super seaworthy boat. I've never worried about the boat. But... <laughs> the crew can be very uncomfortable. We worked our way down and got into Lanzarote. And we arrived there literally a week before I planned on getting there. I mean, I was planning on spending a lot more time in Spain, but because of our opportunity for a weather window, uh, we couldn't. Uh, we ended up getting in Lanzarote a lot early. We rented a car and drove all over the island, and Dave and Bill left me there and uh, headed off to Germany to do a little bit of touring in Germany and then back to the United States. In Lanzarote, I stayed at the Marina Porto Calero, which was a little more expensive than Porto del Carmen, which is in downtown, which, you know, Porto del Carmen is the big marina near the big part of the town. But Porto Calero was much quieter and very delightful. I I really enjoyed it, but it was it was a more expensive marina. And you ended up having to rent a car and drive around the island to do any grocery shopping and that sort of thing, which was okay. We needed some parts and so we drove into a marine store in Porto del Carmen and uh, got to to look at that marina and we drove around the island, but Porto Calero was was just a delightful delightful marina to stay in. Not as much activity, much quieter, friendly people, great staff, uh, good water. They do reverse osmosis, so the water I put in the tanks and filled up our jerry cans with was, uh, was very good water. What we did on the crossing is I had a lot of collapsible five-gallon water jugs, uh, I think about 12 or 13 altogether, lining the rails of the boat. And we used the tank water just basically for washing. We could have used it for for drinking, but we decided, well, if we know the water is good in the jerry cans, why bother with it? Because I will get little bits of algae out of the water in the the boat tank. And so I thought, well, let's just use the, the jerry cans or the jerry bottles or whatever, the collapsible water bottles and use that for water. And that worked out really well. We, we literally only went through on the full crossing, uh, 
Well, I shouldn't say on the full crossing. The longest leg of the crossing, about five of these uh, collapsible water jugs. So five times five. 25 gallons of water we ended up using for drinking. That was just drinking water. Might have used a little more, but about that much. So I'm stuck in Porto Calero for about seven days. I have a rental car. I'm driving all over the island, enjoying it. It's a, it's a very interesting island. I enjoyed it. It's a volcanic. They have camels on the island that you can, if you're a tourist, you can go take a camel ride. I didn't. I just saw them and thought that was interesting. Uh, drove from north to south, to east to west, every little road I could find. I drove very pleasant temperatures. The primary tourists on the island seemed to be British. It, it was it was fun. I was I was bored by the time my next crew arrived. I was ready to leave, but we still took another day or two to uh, to show them around the island. That would have been John Fletcher and, and Rob Dormant, both from Britain, both British. John was phenomenal. He put together the the menu for the trip, the uh, he was basically the quartermaster. We did a lot of shopping. He made sure we had enough food, and actually more food than we needed, which is what you want to have uh, for the boat. He was really, he really, with me, I would have had a bunch of pasta and rice. With John, we had some really good food, and he was a good cook. So, And he's he's got his own boat in in Scotland, so he's a sailor on his own right, so he knows what to expect. He's slightly younger than me, so he's an older person. Rob was the young one. He was in his 30s. And John and I are both in our 60s, in my case, in my late 60s, and John in the mid-60s. Anyway, we left uh, for the nine-day passage from uh, Lanzarote down to Cape Verde. And if I had to do this trip over again... I probably would not go to Cape Verde. Uh, I did not find Cape Verde interesting. It was sort of a depressing island to go visit. A lot of poverty. It's basically Africa on an island. Um, a lot of crime. Uh, dirty. Hard to, hard to provision. It was very hard to provision. And the harbor there in Cape Verde is... One of the most uncomfortable harbors I've stayed in. It's got a constant surge because the wind is always uh, from, well, it, it's a somewhat protected, but there's a constant surge in the harbor, not a very well-protected harbor. And the first night, I had uh, I was side-tied to the dock, and my, my bumpers were hanging down. There was so much up-and-down motion that it literally broke my lifeline that was holding up my, my fenders, my bumpers. So I had to find a place to replace the lifeline. Fortunately, there was a place that could do that in uh, in Cape Verde. It was difficult to provision there. They did not have a lot of selection for food in Cape Verde. So in hindsight, if I did this over again, I would leave from the Canary Islands, maybe go down to Grand Canary, provision there, and then head, a, head across. It's a little longer passage uh, on a one leg, that's around 20, uh, what is it? It's about around 23 or 24 days from the Canary Islands across versus uh, the 17 days it took us from Cape Verde to get to Grenada. 
But again, we're adding another nine days to sail from the Canary Islands, Lanzarote and the Canary Islands, down to Cape Verde. Rob went out one night and it was held up at Knife Point in, in Mindelo. This is the town of Mindelo in Cape Verde. And then he left and went over to uh, another island and spent a night. And some seven-year-olds tried to pull a knife on him and rob him. So a lot of crime in Mindelo, a lot of poverty, not very interesting. Uh, the sailors that are there are, are Atlantic sailors. The only reason you go to Mindelo, Cape Verde Island, in a boat is you are going to cross the Atlantic. So... In hindsight, I would not have gone down. Well, I shouldn't say in hindsight. If I were to do this again, I would avoid Cape Verde and go straight from the Canary Islands. And the reason I went to Cape Verde is one of my guests, I can't remember exactly who said I should go to Mindelo. And I think it's probably a little better angle for the crossing, but it was dead downwind. All the way across was dead downwind. So we're rolling well, not dead downwind. The the wind was actually on our uh, our starboard quarter, so just just a little off of dead downwind, but enough that it was just very uncomfortable rolling of the of the seas. The seas were always rolling, so it was uncomfortable all the way across. My sail configuration for the crossing was. A, a one reef in my mainsail, which on a normal sail would be two reefs on the mainsail, with it pulled out to the starboard of the boat and prevented from coming back. So it's, a, it's got a preventer on the boom to keep it from going back and forth because just the wave action alone would have made the boom slide back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then my jib, I had with a with a spinnaker pull pulled off to the port of the boat and just just days and days and days on end that that sail configuration did not really change we experimented with going putting the mainsail on the port side and the jib on the starboard side but really that didn't work very well so we went back to our original sail configuration which was the main on the starboard side and the jib on the port side and basically, that was it. All downwind, constant moving of the boat, probably about seven, or not five point, I think on average, over the whole length of the uh, crossing, we averaged around 5.2 knots, day in and day out. Constant wind. We had one day, or one and a half days, on the 17 days from Cape Verde to Grenada that we had to, uh, to motor, other than that, we sailed all all the way. Uh, we sailed all the way from the Canary Islands down to Cape Verde, so we didn't have to motor then. We did start the engine every now and then just to charge the batteries. Then uh, the main draw on the batteries was the refrigerator, and the solar panels didn't quite keep up with the refrigerator. We'd have to start the motor about once every Oh, two, two and a half days. And I'm still having this problem on my boat where I'm getting air in the fuel system. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So to start the engine, I've got to go down and bleed the engine. Several times I've thought I've solved this problem. And every time I think I've solved the problem, 
it works for a day or two and then I, the problem reappears. So I'm still having to bleed the engine to start the engine, bleed the air out of the fuel lines in the engine. And I'm really pretty fast about doing it now. I don't even try to start. I just go bleed it and then start the engine and it starts right up as long as there's no air in the fuel line. So that's the only time we're starting the engine except when we uh, approach Grenada, we start the engine and we have to motor into the wind to get into the uh, to get into St. George's. And in St. George's we go to Port Louis Marina where we have to clear into customs. That's the only clearance port is uh, Port Louis Marina. So we pull in, uh, we try to fuel up ahead of time, but they won't let us fuel up before we clear customs. So we clear customs and then uh, and then come back across and tie up at Port Louis Marine. I'm there for several days. Uh, John and, and uh, oh, I have, didn't mention the new crew that went across with me was, uh, was John Fletcher again, and a new crew member, Mike... McGuire and Mike and I played chess every night. We played chess pretty much every evening. We would play a game of chess. He brought a magnetic chess set aboard, and Mike was a great crew member. He was a positive, <laughs> fun person to have on board. He has his own boat in Connecticut. I think it's Bridgeport, Connecticut, or near Bridgeport, Connecticut. So he joined us in Cape Verde and went across with us. Rob left us in Cape Verde. So Mike leaves when we get to Grenada, but one incident on the crossing, and everybody makes a big deal of this, but we were just going downwind, and, and the wave pattern on the crossing seemed to be the winds were basically coming from the same direction as the wind off our starboard quarter, aft quarter, and so we were rolling around and rolling around. Then every so often there would be three or four waves that come right on our beam. And so it would make it uncomfortable while you're sleeping. You'd be laying there rolling, rolling, rolling. Suddenly there would be these cross waves that would come and, and roll the boat in a totally convoluted manner. Uh, so you just had to put up with it. What are you going to do, right? Anyway, we had one wave... And Mike was on watch, that, that was in probably about 3 in the morning, that he could hear this big, big breaking wave come out and just smashed into the side of the boat. Knocked us over probably oh, 45, 50 degrees. Everything on the starboard side of the boat that was not tied down or stopped just came crashing down to the side. This wave broke on the boat and just drenched Mike. We had a few drops of water get down below, but not very much. And John, who was sleeping in the quarter berth, which is on the starboard side, so up on the uphill side of the boat, so to speak, was just thrown over. And all the tools that I had sitting on the shelf beside him came crashing down onto his bunk. And uh, so I had to move all the tools back into the... I had to take the toolboxes off and take all the tools off and, and put them back in the toolboxes. He was just covered with tools. And so we put the toolboxes underneath the, the settee so this wouldn't happen again. So that was the one, one incident. The only uncomfortable, possibly dangerous, but not really dangerous incident 
we get knockdowns all the time when I race, and it's just part of sailing. But everybody that was following my progress across made a big deal of it. It was really just one wave, not not continuous waves. So not much to it. Um, I think that's about where I'm going to stop for right now. There's a whole other story to talk about, about sailing around Grenada and then leaving my boat eventually in Trinidad. But that'll do it for right now. Hope you get out there and go sailing. My my schedule for this summer. I will not be sailing in the Mediterranean this summer. I may take a trip and do some sailing over in places like Sweden or England if I get invited. But I do know I'm going to be doing the Chicago to Mackinac Island race on uh, July 21st. Some of my friends in Chicago have invited me to join them. And uh, I plan on doing that. That'll be the, I think, the third or fourth time that I've done, uh, the fourth time I've done that race. And it's a fun race, so I plan on doing that. So if you're in Chicago, make sure we, uh, we get together. All right, get out there and go sailing. Thanks for listening. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.